Today's episode of the Music Therapy Research Podcast, I'm pleased to bring you Dr. Michael Viega, who is an assistant professor of music therapy at the State University of New York at New Paltz and a fellow in the Association of Music and Imagery. I think I remember uh, probably meeting um, Dr. Viega before he was Dr. Viega um, uh, in uh, at a conference where a lot of our uh, you know initial and informal relationships start happening uh, in the music therapy world in particular. Uh, hanging around uh, with uh, a friend of a mutual friend of ours, Doug Keith, and a couple other uh, Temple University folks, and uh, you'll hear um, Dr. Vega reference uh, back to that in one of the first couple questions as well. He's published and presented on a wide range of topics such as hip hop and music therapy, which can be found in the current edition of Music Therapy Perspectives here in 2016. Arts-based research methodologies, which is probably the the bulk of our discussion today. Uh, therapeutic songwriting and adverse childhood experiences and adolescent development. He serves on the editorial board for Music Therapy Perspectives and Voices, a world forum for music therapy. He's currently the president-elect of the Mid-Atlantic region of the American Music Therapy Association, and on a national level, he serves on the AMTA Assembly of Delegates. Um, We also uh, will have notes and uh, some links for a couple uh, other bits of Dr. Vega's work, and and you can also see the chapter that he co-authored with Dr. Michelle Fornash in the new version of the Music Therapy Research. It's the third edition of Music Therapy Research that is edited by Barbara Wheeler and Kathy Murphy. So without further ado, I'll give you my conversation today about arts-based research with Dr. Michael Vieira. Please to welcome to the show today. Dr. Michael Viega, and uh, I'm wondering if you'd start with just explaining a little bit about how you first got interested, or your, maybe your pathway, in terms of becoming interested in music therapy research from the researcher side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, first, I just want to thank you, Andrew, and and Blythe for creating this um, for creating this podcast. What a great tool for clinicians, researchers, and students, and I'm just really happy to be here. So thank you a lot for that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, um, I, you know, I feel like I came in at an interesting time in music therapy research. I was a clinician um, in D.C. and then Chicago around from, you know, 1999 or 2000 to 2005 when I decided to get my um, – Grad start grad school at Temple University in Philly, in Philadelphia, and it was that was the year that uh, Barbara Wheeler put out the second edition of Music Therapy Research. So I remember really my first research class corresponded with that monster book um, that was super intimidating when it first came out. You would drop it on the floor and the earth would rattle with the enormous size of it. You say and, that, but you, you know how big the third edition is, of course. Exactly right, right, and and there's there's an there's two versions of it: the intro version and the yeah, it just keeps keeps growing and growing, and um, and I feel like you know with with that with with that 
year. You know, culture-centered music therapy came out. Music-centered music therapy came out. I just feel like I entered into grad school at the time of theoretical explosion. I mean, it was almost like every every time I turned around, resource-oriented music therapy, there was just so many fantastic perspectives that had been bubbling under the surface and would pop up that I just, you know, I, it was just, just like a candy shop of theoretical orientations and different perspectives and getting, you know, really introduced to Tony Wigram and his contribution and, and then Christian Gold and, you know, Brainyoff Stiga and um, Kokia Vet Elephant. I believe that's how you spell, how you pronounce her name. But, um, but just the research that was happening at that time, especially in um in europe was uh and in australia was really influential to me on a lot of different levels in my in my studies because i just felt like it was matching for me the theoretical orientations and the research there was there was a more clarity i was receiving than you know what during my undergrad days um studying and i was only exposed to i was exposed to the you know the journal of music therapy of course and music therapy perspectives and um when voices was introduced in early 2000 i started getting my first taste of just a lot of new perspectives and so i feel like at that time it all kind of started clicking at a really important time when i was starting to open up into what you know what my own theoretical foundations were and then and so Along with that, I remember the San Diego conference, um, maybe in 2008, 2009 we in, in San Diego, 2009, yeah. was that it? And yeah. I, and, and I remember, you know, I think it was, uh, I was finishing my master's thesis and moving into my doctoral program. And, and there was a moment where Ken Agin and Tony Meadows did a presentation on qualitative research. And in the audience that day was Cliff Matson and also DeForia Lane and I remember Ken had, you know, pointed out that Cliff Matson was there, and you know, both they, you know, there was there almost had seemed to be at that moment a nice um, healing of the split, you know, where where I felt like okay, we in my generation, it felt like um, we have moved beyond the silos. Um, and, and that people were recognizing that there are many different perspectives and worldviews, um, and that they're all needed in order to, you know, solve the issues within, within, uh, our research and, and, and that, and, you know, that's still, that still felt that way during music therapy research 2025, when we all met in Baltimore, it just felt like, wow, you know, people people still are at different ends of the spectrum but just a great amount of respect within within um those various perspectives just feel to me like things are integrating and so i just feel like uh i came in at that time when all of that was really starting to happen you know and a little bit of that also uh, you mentioned uh, Ken, because the idea for, especially for maybe graduate students or new researchers who are listening and thinking about these these names that we're hearing, you know, yeah. we've had Ken on the podcast, and 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 uh, Ken and Blythe had a session that was kind of yeah. that kind of did a little bit of uh, what you're talking about, where it was meant to be this, um, you know, clash of the titans, so to speak. <laughs> right. uh, but you know, we had a really big ballroom in the AMTA conference in 2015. 
and um, it, you know, and it really, you know, if there were people that that wanted some sort of bloodlust about which research methodology was going to come on top or which clinical approach was going to come on top, they don't, they didn't get that because, like you said, the 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 the, um, the temperature of, of our research methodologies certainly has changed, and maybe part of it is due to what what you mentioned in the first place, which is that really uh, really a significant broadening of of if you want to call it methodologies or if you just want to call it philosoph- uh, philosophies uh, even more broader yeah. than that and right. that happened and you're saying you were a bit of a product of that um, definitely a product of that. I mean I and you know all praise goes out to the the Temple University faculty which inspired me and I think I got all the best of the worlds where I had you know Dr. Cheryl Delia who when I was coming in um, had just published the meta-analysis for the medical for medical music therapy. So, you know, meta meta-analysis was really taking off um, at that time, and and you know she was beginning to develop the Cochrane reviews, and so you know she was really peaking my you know, my objectionist, my quantitative brain. And I was doing these, you know, my PhD, of course, I'm taking all these stats classes going, wow, you know, numbers are just as kind of, you know, I got to deal with like what, how I'm going to test these numbers. And so these, I have to know what test and numbers are just kind of as flexible. And I just sort of really, I really started, you know, opening up to multiple points of view. And then I had, of course, my uh, dissertation advisor was was Ken Aiken, who, um, you know, and my master's thesis advisor, who, you know, showed me, you know, guiding me throughout uh, the process of, you know, my dissertation, but also my um, my dissertation, but also my phenomenological thesis. And then I had Ken Brucia as an advisor and, you know, Dr. Darlene Brooks. And each of them just encouraged me to thank, don't thank one way, mm-hmm. you know, thank multiple ways, encouraged me to thank multiple ways. And so I think that has a lot to do with, uh, of course, you know, how I approach research and how I think about the research. And I have to also say, um, at that time, you know, in that mid 2000 period, I started, I started like really, I was fascinated with, you know, there was a Tony, Tony Wigram had a research article that was uh, RCT uh, that looked at joint attention and autism and it was utilizing improvisation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just on a philosophical, just and and, the, and then you know Yoka Brat, who I also worked with at Temple University while she was there at the Arts and Quality of Life Research Center, you know, and and mixed methods started coming into play, and you know just these questions about you know someone from a qualitative paradigm or someone who's looking at things constructed through constructionist viewpoints, but who enters into the world of an objectivist design and how those worlds could probably, you know, um, you know, kind of, you know, begin to answer the question more fully. And that really fascinated me. I felt like folks like Christian gold, I was really into, um, um, Christian Gold and his colleagues did a meta-analysis on adolescence. I think in 2004, adolescence uh, and and with psychopathology and music and the effects of music therapy, and they found you know a robust um, you know effect size for music therapy. But then 
to see if that actually held up, they began a series of what they called like kind of naturalistic designs that were still within kind of a quantitative paradigm, but they allowed for more, you know, confounding variables in. And when they said, well, when we look at what the when we look at the results of that meta-analysis in a, in a more clinical space, the meta-analysis doesn't hold up anymore. And so you know, we feel like the validity of this research is actually very strong because it actually mimics what actually happens in a clinic. And I just thought, man, that's that's amazing. Like they're answering these questions or they're trying to really get into the heart of these questions of relationship and, you know, what happens in a clinic. And when people just don't have one issue, you know, they have confounding issue, you know, all these issues piled on top of each other. So how can you just say music therapy works with one thing when people are complex? And I just, I was really inspired by that. It just seemed like at that, at that time, people's designs were getting more creative and their questioning questions were deepening. And, and so, yeah, those, I think those are some of the major influences on, on my, my own way of thinking, you know? I think you just said an important term, too, and that's the one I was thinking when you said complexity, or you said the word complex. So when I think about yeah. complexity, I also struggle with the idea of um, uh, how do I help new researchers, uh, you know, grad students and everything, how do I help them not to just sort of feel that complexity or understand it and just fall over and just go, ah. <laughs> I right. much prefer, can we just divide everyone into three groups, and I would like to... And then, uh, and then we'll have the control group and the white noise group and the music group or whatever it is. And right. So how do you how do you um, uh, bring in that complexity and explain it with the enthusiasm that you that you just showed in, in your previous answer? How do you how do you uh, convey that enthusiasm about the complexity and, and helping new researchers, uh, stimulating them to embrace the complexity in music therapy in particular? Well, I, you know, key for me is developing critical thinking skills, you know, for, for, mm. for the, for students. And, you know, that's about as complex of a skill as I feel like, you know, I, I'm not even quite sure I fully understand how to teach that skill, you know, um, because, you know, one of the challenges of course is, you know, my life experience and the way I view the world really, helped me engage with the literature at the time that it did. And now I have to look through my students' lens and say, well, how are they seeing the world? And, you know, what inspires them, uh, both within this, you know, both within the way they, the way they're viewing the world, uh, and, and how the world is impacting them. And so I think inspiring, inspiring them to, trust their own theoretical foundation first and foremost for me to say you have an important way you view the world and let's start with that so that you know whatever that may be and then we're gonna look in that world and see what questions does this not answer what questions does it answer and what what's left here and then you know what's left is when we see what's left we'll what other worldviews and designs could actually help enhance that? So, you know, starting where they're at is, is my, has always been my, my hope is that I can help inspire them from their own strengths. And, uh, and yeah, I feel like a lot of the students um, that I teach and uh, students in particular right now, 
you know, there's such a pragmatic worldview uh, in general. You know, I was thinking of my my niece who, you know, on her answer machine message, you know, you call her and she says, well, you can leave a message, but I won't answer it because no one uses an answering machine anymore. <laughs> That's it. I <laughs> you know, was wondering that myself. <laughs> There's a million ways to get a hold of me. You can text me, you can Facebook me, you can Instagram me, you can Snapchat me. And and so I just think, you know, more so than my generation, people are used to students are used to, you know, pragmatically solving issues and they're not ready to wait for the structures to align with things being ready to move forward. They're like, well, what can we do right now? And then we'll workshop it so that it's, you know, so that when the next time comes around, we can improve on it so that we're not perfect right now. Let's workshop what we have. Let's get out what we have. And then the next time we'll come around, we'll keep improving on that. And I think, I think there's a lot of benefit to, to that, um, of what, you know, students nowadays are kind of braining from their experiences, uh, just being, you know, at during at that generational, uh, at that generation. So, so let me use that to to dig into what uh, what, what really uh, uh, is interesting to me, especially your current uh, research interests and uh, the the term being art based research. You've got yeah. the you've got uh, a couple of articles here in, in Nordic yeah. uh, Nordic Journal the perspectives, and you've got the and then you, the chapter and the aforementioned. Um, third edition of the research book and i'm blanking right now is that with dr fornash that you co-wrote that one for Uh, the nordic no the chapter in the uh the chapter in the research book yeah Um, yeah 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 michelle fornash yep right so and so there's a little bit of the history of you know where it was coming from out of the east coast especially leslie university a little bit of and then your experiences temple and everything and there's that nyu component there so yeah give us how could how can you give us the uh the uh the cliff notes version of where did art space research uh, really come from in the 70s and 80s and how did it what's the through line to get to your interest and what what really sparked your interest in it uh that you want to carry it into our profession yeah you know um it obviously is an extent it was an extension it is an extension of qualitative scholarship um you know rising you know i think sean mcniff uh from leslie university who's an art ther- arts art therapist was really the first to coin the term from my understanding as early as like 1981 um and it and it took a life of its own until he wrote a book in 1998 on the topic and then f- other folks like barone and eisner have expanded upon it and it's it really like nursing uh holds a lot of arts-based research the social sciences has a lot of arts-based research uh arts education and pedagogy has a ton of arts-based research, um, other creative arts therapies, social justice writings, utilizing performance, uh, performative ethnography. And so the arts have been used in research in different forms um, in a lot of different fields. But I, it was 1991 when Diane Austin um, was doing a study at NYU working with uh, folks in Alcoholics Anonymous and her uh, research uh, teacher was a lady named Margot Eli, who um, was also who also taught Ken Egg and, and the, their qualitative class uh, at NYU. And she really encouraged, from my understanding, um, from both Ken and Diane and folks who had her. She really said, you know, 
why not? Why, you know, you you have this question, why not use the arts? Go for it. And, and gave people permission to look at questions um, and use various methods to look at those questions. And so Diane took her, um, the play, she created a play uh, to kind of synthesize these composite characters that would have normally, I guess, come about as like composite themes, but she needed to develop this musical the- music theater piece and write songs for for these composite characters she was creating almost like a chorus line where it starts off with four different characters and the first one you know has you know um a lot of days uh they're counting days and it starts with like you know 500 days to you know i have 100 days i have 30 days and i'm on my first day and so each of these characters on different spectrums of their progress. And she began to perform it at conferences. I think I, somewhere in the late nineties, I was at a conference and saw a version of the play and I always kept it in the back of my head going, wow, I think I would love to do that one time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So it had kind of been in the back of my mind from that experience. Um, And just to interrupt a second too, was, was the, was last year the first time it was performed at an AMTA conference? Um, yeah, it was performed. It was performed at the AMTA conference when, when Michelle and I started to collaborate on the on the, um, on the chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, she, we were. T- I was. You know, I was talking about um, editing. I was going to edit this version of Perspectives that Tony Meadow Tony Meadows asked me to do. She had encouraged me to reach out to Diane. And I'm so glad I did. What a col- great collaboration and adventure we went on together where we began to, um, where I brought her in to work with students at SUNY New Paltz. Um, and even the process of, of getting into that piece again for her, it was as if she was generating new data, that the voices, the voice, we auditioned students and every student that auditioned, she, she would, you could see her, um, kind of moving into that character and, and that knowledge that she had already gained and said, oh, that voice that that student had, wow, that brings out a certain quality of that one character. And you could just see her still generating data. It's that cyclical process of arts-based research where data is constantly being generated. And um, and, and you could see her process, uh, her deepening of, of the information and the students deepening of the knowledge held within that play uh, all the way up to performing it. So those, um, that performance, and then I also performed my dissertation um, at SUNY New Paltz, and those performances can be uh, seen by video uh, through music therapy perspectives for the journal that uh the special edition on our space research yeah so the so, amt members can can log in through the through that member portal and then have access to those links yeah yeah and and then we performed at, a, at the amta conference last year which was just really exciting and then you know i think diane recently we just had a symposium here this past weekend on art space research kind of bringing in our art educators and art therapists and music therapists together and um you know, Diane had mentioned, you know, that it was probably time to move on with it, you know, from it. So it was, it was, it was an honor for me to really be there, uh, uh, to see this process unfold again and, and to be exposed at it on a kind of performative level has been, has been really fantastic. You know, my, my, um, 
One of my interests in arts-based research, you know, has been to understand it not from, you know, it's an extension of qualitative research, but as I began to really delve into it, I began to say, you know, there are, I, I don't have to be locked within one paradigm here. It's almost as if the knowledge that's held within the aesthetics, held within the art, you know, the knowledge of that's held within there can hold on its own, just as any great piece of artwork that you and I come across that we aesthetically kind of experience and we're transformed. Then like, you know, let's say we go see a concert together and we experience a concert and the whole group together just starts to cheer as cheer as they, the band plays one song and there's this group collective experience of like, whoa, like we're just together in this, in this, in this amazing space together. And there's this collective group knowledge that's happening then after the concert we start to make meaning of it we can i don't know maybe you rate it using like a four out of five stars or you give it mm -hmm. two thumbs up two thumbs down i mean there's all these ways we kind of make sense of it we can and people do use kind of objective ways of making sense of it and some people you know use constructive ways construction of its ways of making sense of it but i i i held that you know, if I was looking at a mixed methods paradigm, for instance, and someone was um, doing outcomes of, of something and they were doing some interviews of something. But what if they structurally cooperated, put together a whole of of some art of, of synthesizing all that together in some uh, in some artistic way that that for me as a as a music therapist and as a creative person and as someone who trusts the music process with clients um, that I want that information as well. I just felt like that that was an important part of the puzzle and that that is not located within one um, that's not located within one construct within one paradigm by itself. And so that's led me to, uh, to kind of think about more axiology, you know, aesthetics and ethics, uh, rather than the question of epistemology, especially with arts-based research. I have a colleague in the art education world from the Syracuse University who began, who, James Rowling, who wrote a book called Arts-Based Primer, Arts-Based Research, a Primer. Hmm. And, um, you know, he begins to look at he's 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 tracing, um, you know, the role of arts based research to pre scientific method, meaning that before the scientific method mm -hmm. in history, there was the artistic method and that art was a way of organizing knowledge that we obtain from the universe. And and, you know, the scientific method grew out of how people represented the world through art, you know, both music, drawing, representations, um, kind of looking at how we remember things and how we see the world and all that was very represented through the arts. Theatrical and that, retellings of, of yeah. historical events or personal historical events to other people so that they would understand. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, and, and from that extended the scientific method, I feel like we're, we're now in a period where Perhaps the scientific method hasn't been able to answer all the questions we have, especially when looking at a lot of the social issues that we're facing in the world and perhaps the role of the arts. And somewhere within our 
Eurocentric model uh, and capitalist model. We've kind of relegated the arts to entertainment or, you know, kind of not important. But it seems to me that there are folks who are pulling it back and saying, no, in fact, it's a way of knowing the world that's vital and it can actually transform questions and it can transform people's lives in a very profound way. And I, I feel like arts-based research is at, is at that kind of forefront, if, if you will, of, of kind of answering those questions, you know. And it's and to back up to the, the term that you used uh, in the, I believe it was the Perspectives article, when you really were sort of explaining, and you have some nice um, graphics in there that are contrasting axiology and epistemology. Could you could you give uh, the the uh, uh, summary understanding of why it is that you're looking at axiology as opposed to epistemology, and why you're encouraging music therapists? Um, uh, to do that in terms of this, sure. this, this approach of arts-based research. Yeah, I feel like, you know, um, Michael Crotty, who is a social science, uh, social, social science researcher, um, and educator, um, he would talk about methodology as, as being the overall, you know, kind of worldview that is, um, you know, uh, that is, uh, you know, the, informed by someone's theoretical perspective, which is informed by someone's epistemology. So he had kind of utilized these graphs as a top-down uh, saying, hey, listen, if someone's epistemology is objectionist, and then the theoretical positioning is going to be rooted in, rooted in that, and their methodology is going to be located within an experimental design, and their methods within there are going to be, you know, sur- you know uh, surveys, questionnaires. Mm-hmm. And the same within the qualitative paradigm, you know, someone's going to be have a, an epistemology rooted in constructionism, and then their theoretical perspective is going to be rooted in uh, interpretivism. Then their methodology is going to be, you know, phenomenology, and their methods are going to be collecting interviews, you know, and uh, interviewing people. So, you know, I, I kind of being being um, immersed in all types of research that utilized arts, I began to see, oh, well, people are talking about arts in terms of just the methods. And sometimes the method they use art in an adjunctive way, like I'm still doing phenomenology, but maybe as I started interviewing, I needed to write poetry to better understand the, the question or better understand what the data was telling me. Um, some people were using it as a primary method. And when, uh, for Nash and Austin, uh, um, in the 2005 edition, they kind of, they located their definition of arts-based research, um, within this kind of account where, you know, uh, you know, throughout the design, during the design period, you know, the arts are used, but it's still seen, seen as a kind of an extension of that qualitative, uh, worldview. Well, here I began to, this is where uh, James Rowling again began to influence me because, um, you know, he really stated, and around the time he started stating, and I started seeing it pop up elsewhere too, that arts-based research in of itself um, can be held within its own paradigm where it's the paradigm and it's a creative worldview that's sustained throughout the investigation that's not limited to just um to just the you know even sound create it's not limited to just 
the methods, you know, it's, it's, um, the aesthetics and how you engage with the aesthetics informs what directions you go and you can shift between epistemologies or you can shift between methods and and how you're going to actually deliver the results depending upon what the um, ethical and aesthetic demand of the inquiry and how that's taking shape. And so, um, you know, I consider, you know, if you look at um, uh, a lot of TED Talks, Sure. Um, for instance, you know, you'll see a lot of, uh, who's that? I saw a Ted talk from a guy named David McCandless and he wrote a, he wrote this great book, this huge coffee table book called information is beautiful. Right. And, and you can go to information is beautiful. I think.net and, and see that, you know, his way of understanding open data of like, you know, um, of various ta- cities and, uh, across the United States, they have all this d- open access data and thousands and, and, of data points and right, yeah, absolutely. And he'll he'll create these fantastic uh, graphs that are just gorgeous, and he has them in a way to where, if I just looked at the graph, that it's, it's so beautiful, and that my I kind of understand the information on an aesthetic level, and then you click a button, and then the numbers pop in. Well, for me, that's, of course, it's arts-based research. But, you know, if I was to look at it through some epistemology, he's a, he's obviously coming at it from kind of an objectionist viewpoint in a lot of ways. You know, his epistemology in a lot of ways is that, you know, we're dealing with numbers here and how can I understand these numbers better? So the aesthetics holds its own ground. He's saying, you know, he's saying that you could just engage with the aesthetic and know it. Mm-hmm. Um but that's not located, you know, within one one specific kind of epistemological or theoretical stance. Um, you know, I, I've I've seen things where you know neuroscience science scientists are, you know, maybe collect certain um, brain imaging scans and then turn turn that into turn whatever they to um, some kind of beautiful, take it and uh, computer generated into music, you know, and that music tells its own story. It tells its, it's tell, it tells its own understanding. It reveals something. I think that is the, one of the keys to arts-based research is that it, it reveals something The com- going back to the complexity. It reveals the complexity in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, arts-based research. Mm-hmm. Through the artwork, it, you can see the complexity, experience the complexity, be with it, um, and, and every performance or every engagement reveals something new about it. It puts, I, you know, I, I'm really interested right now in how audiences evaluate arts-based research. One of the reasons why we've been performing Gray Street and we I was been performing my own dissertation was that I was really into like, well, what's what's the audience's role here? And you know, the, the audience got surveys and you know, I kind of broke the survey down into various aesthetic categories um, to understand, well, how did what did you get out of this? And what I've loved about it was that you know, I, I, you know, of course I liked as a researcher when people responded positively, but what I got even more from as a researcher was moments when people viscerally had a, like, had a reaction to it where they were just like, I didn't understand what was going on. I am, you know, I just was not, I, you know, I, I actually wanted to get up and leave. And I was like, when I got my ego aside, I thought, <laughs> man, 
great. You were moved. You were something, something happened. Uh And for me thinking about my favorite artists, you know, going through periods of growth and understanding the world differently and, you know, people evaluate their art at first they may, you know, critique it and judge it and and then after a while it holds up on its own or becomes part of something else and people start to make meaning of it later but um i don't think i would want a piece where people just always thought well that was beautiful how great was that i was like maybe i want something that shakes people up and and gets them to see something new in a different way how much context do i have to give them before i perform can i just like perform it and it hold up on its own or do I have to give them a lot of context for them to understand these results as I'm performing them and I'm kind of as I perform it I'm giving you a new I'm, I'm generating data again you know um, uh, in terms of how I'm how I'm uh, experiencing this this uh, this piece with you as an audience so I, I just love the complexity um, and I love that it can offer a view of the world that is um, that is held within the artwork itself. You know, I think. Yeah, no, go for it. Well, I was going to say with the with the complexity, I you know, it's not just the complexity, but the uh, and maybe part of the complexity is the is when you keep on using the word data. You know, ha- helping researchers understand like there's so much data out there that data is not just the numbers. Data is not just the the uh, transcripts from the interviews or the or the the notes from the fields so to speak and uh you know and it just made me think of the um um your you know i think when the first times i really started seeing your name pop up um at uh, amta sessions it was it, it, people were really enjoying your hip-hop stuff that you were showing on a real basic level sometimes i think you were just saying here's how i kind of bring in some loops here's how i do some sampling and you actually articulated that and a in in your paper um in the what's in a song uh, uh, paper and i'm wondering if you yeah. could talk a little bit about about um wh- where'd you even come up with the idea that you were going to break down the sampling idea and how you're going to bring that in um and and not only not just that but um um the, the nature of how you are disseminating the information you know you're out there breaking the rules of, of what we teach with a you know apa style and everything and you can use the word i and you can explain here's what right. i did and, and all that uh, yeah. could you talk a little bit about that article breaking the law breaking the law yes it's speaking of sampling <laughs> plop. yeah exactly right um yeah i you know so um I, I was thinking about the arts-based research symposium this past weekend here, and Sean McNiff was doing a keynote, and he was like, "I will, I refuse to call it data. It's just I'm gonna, you know, it's just art, and you know, we're creating this art." And but I, I do like to use the word data, just because for me it holds, um, you know, I like to just be planted within the research world and the artistic world. And I try to locate myself at sometimes either fully in one, fully in the other, or kind of in between. And so I do like the term like artist as researcher too, because it helps me kind of locate, you know, what my role is even here. So for instance, when I, you know, when I started, when I started um, writing songs with, with, uh, in music, doing therapeutic songwriting with um, adolescents who had experienced trauma and complex trauma, and um, and there were and a lot of them identified with hip hop culture, and so I, I had 
just a collection, a database of like, you know, 200 songs from that, from that work. And, you know, from my love of popular music, from hip hop, from uh, electronic dance music, you know, remixing is obviously a, um, it's a, it's a, tool and it's a form of music in of itself in which something is re 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 taken you take it to context of something from one you kind of reconfigure it you know um you 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 and you show it as something new it becomes it's and it shows something new about the original one right songs are really complex and that like you know recently like taylor swift's album 1989 ryan adams just like redid the whole album on acoustic guitar and the songs are the same yeah. and then but, toured like, on that too actually and toured on that big yeah. of a deal yeah and and what's fascinating me about things like that is that the songs are are the same but the me the just like but one reveals one thing of the song and the other reveals something completely different so this but the song remains you know, consistent. So I, I love that. Like I can re-image a song and discover something new about the song that's already in the song. And so for me as a music therapist, I'm always looking at ways of how I could better understand, empathize, understand the lived experiences of the people I've, of the songwriters I've worked with and, and kind of understand, you know, myself within that relationship. I think about a technique that Ken Bruce, um, utilized for the body method of guided imagery and music where he created a technique called re-imaging which was a technique to uncover counter-transference so a client is dialoguing with the therapist you know the therapist begins to experience or experiences a counter-transference moment within an image he'll take that image and the music that they listen to during or in the piece that they listen to during that he'll take it he'll take that to another therapist his own therapist where he'll utilize the client's image as the, as the focus image. And then the same music will be played and he's re-imaging that to kind of understand, um, that in a deeper, in a deeper way. And so I, I've kind of used that as, um, as an inspiration for what I was getting from remixing in which I was taking moments of songs, uh, that, that the songwriters who I was working with these songs that they had written and it could be like a moment of where they breathe in between phrases and that, and that breath seemed really vital towards, you know, what was happening next, or it may be a phrase or a musical moment. So responding intuitively to these moments and sampling them all together to create a sound portrait and so I began to remix their songs to gain new insight into songs, and, you know, kind of like what microanalysis, kind of uh, looking at small moments in the songs. Mm -hmm. And so here I have all these remixes. I could call that, in essence, my raw data in some ways. You know, if you go to SoundCloud uh, backslash rising from ashes, you can see uh, in that SoundCloud just I've been dumping a lot of my remixes in there. Um, because I just feel like, well, people can engage with those and of themselves. And, you know, I, it's funny cause I'll, I don't know people who, you know, people who have been listening to them, I don't think are music therapists. I think, you know, when I see who's liked it, it's just some random person. And I'm like, someone's engaging with this and they're gaining something from it. 
Um, and they may not even know it's research. Yeah, well, of course they don't know it's research, but they're gaining something from it. I just think that's so cool that we can engage audiences in new ways in research. And for me, like one of the great things about hip hop and art and music in general is there's a little subversive nature to it. You know, like yeah. that's that's where, you know, graffiti started from the Bronx with some guy spray painting you know, his name on a, uh, on, on a train and then it goes across five boroughs and now it's a font in my computer graffiti, you know? So there's a way to be subversive so that it can move into the consciousness. And I feel like I, I love that remix can allow me that form to explore these songs and create little aesthetic pieces of knowing the key to it is though, I think for anybody who's interested in arts-based research, when you start creating and you start collecting this what i would call raw data of just a lot of art you have to find uh music whatever it is you have to find some way to structurally corroborate it and so for me that term becomes really important where you're where you're creating a compelling whole what Brown and eisner would consider the key to like validate you know to of validity you know where that where you're taking all these various pieces and you're putting them into into an interesting hole that reveals something. Um, so this could be like Diane's, you know, Diane had like poetry. She had songs. She had these character these characters written up, and her structural collaboration was the play itself. Or for instance, you know, during my dissertation or or the article in a Nordic journal, creating like a concept album, like in, in music, you know, that's a way to tell a narrative, you know, whether it's The Wall by Pink Floyd or, you know, something a little bit more, uh, you know, obtuse like Kid A is kind of a concept album, but, this, but the narrative's not as formed like The Wall. It's a little bit, it holds together, but you have to infer your own meaning from it. I love those ways of thinking in music. I, and I love to think about music in that way and say, wow, you know, what if I take a researcher lens to this? What if my point of view is, is I'm looking at a question? And so I think one of the, for me, when people say, well, you know, what's a, why combine research and art? And I say, well, you know, it depends upon your point of view. If um, I could look at Kendrick Lamar's album to pimp a butterfly and I know Kendrick was working, was probably working on, he had a, he had a question in mind. He was, he was thinking about, he had a particular topic that came and he's, and he workshopped it and, and it evolved over time. He was taking an artist's point of view, but I think I could look at that album and, and say, you know, what does this album tell me about current social justice or current needs related to race in America and, and view that album from within that perspective and understand even Kendrick's process as answering a question. And so I, I see the two as vitally integrated that I think it's a false dichotomy to say research and art are two separate things. I think ultimately they are married to each other. And that arts-based research is awakening that that perspective, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it sounds a little bit also like you're you're bringing it back around to when we were talking about axiology too. When yeah. you, if you're bringing up those particular, you know, when you want to when people want to boil it down, they say something like concept album or something. But I think that was kind of the neat part uh, for me uh, enjoying the the Nordic article because that one and so for 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 
um, people who aren't familiar with it yet. So what's in a song combining analytical and arts based analysis for songs created by songwriters with neurodisabilities. And you went right to um, the uh, sort of champion, one of the champions of songwriting her, uh, herself, Felicity Baker. So it's a, yeah. it was that, that was a really neat uh, collaboration to read about as well. It'd be a link in our, in the, uh, in the blog post for this podcast, but I'm wondering uh, just to wrap up here, uh, what, what sort of, um, recommendations is usually how we we frame it to to all the guests on the podcast what sort of recommendations do you have for future researchers who are interested in music therapy recommendations advice that sort of thing for arts-based research for any kind of research more broadly but it could also be if you're if you're specifically really want to dial into arts-based research then yeah what would that look like well, look, I just want to jump back because you mentioned just really fast before I answer that. Sure. Is that okay? Sure. I just want I want to mention um, Dr. Felicity Baker because mm-hmm. I think in that article, you know, um, we talk about how we're coming from two theoretical different stances, kind of epistemological stances, our viewpoints. But yet, yeah. you know, they need to be integrated. And she's just been a huge influence of mine as a researcher as well. So it has been really a great honor. You know, a lot of the current songs that I'm remixing come from studies that her team are doing out in the University of Melbourne, mm-hmm. Melbourne, uh, therapeutic songwriting with folks who have acquired brain injuries. And so to be part of that process and team with her has just been one of the joys of my professional career and uh you know i have to thank felicity a ton for being open to arts-based research and and understanding well i think that her her kind of coming to that was from her model of therapeutic songwriting and she put out which to me is one of the most important method books that we have in our field is understanding like oh what aesthetics this is an important part of songs and so she saw the need to to bring in this viewpoint and so that that i think is really important and kind of ties into what i would say to students and young researchers which is you know don't be locked down to one way of thinking you know i remember um at uh, 2011 at Ken Bruce's keynote uh, Sears address, he mm-hmm. one of one of my favorite lines of all time that he said in that address was, "You can't think the way you want to think. You have to think the way your client needs you to think." Mm. Um, and I always thought, well, that's profound. I'm gonna absolutely hold on to that one. And I feel that's true in research. You know, you you have to, you know, I guess pragmatically. I guess it's a pragmatist in me that says you have to adjust depending upon what your question is. What do you want to know? What is needed and what is important for for the people you're working with? And how can you best answer that question? How how can you best bring in other people who have different perspectives and different uh, different talents, whatever it may be, and, and bring that in as well. So don't stay tied down to just one way and also trust your strengths and your worldview you know like know yourself and and trust that you have something to offer i think just the basic belief that everybody who comes to this field you know that's one of my ongoing uh, one uh, ongoing mission is to encourage clinicians that you're kind of hard, you're already doing research as a clinician, you're investigating something complex with a 
client, uh, you know, you may not be looking at it through a researcher's mind or you don't may not have a research question, but you already have all these tools within you. You're already using the creative arts uh, in a way to investigate these complexities of the people we work with. And so you have a researcher in you. I think we tend to, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm an artist um, over here and I'm a therapist over here and a ah, researcher. No, if I was, it's way over there. And, uh, and, you know, for me being an arts-based researcher has helped integrate all those things. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, I, all those things are important part of the fold, you know, and, and it's why I got into this profession and to begin with into our field is because all those parts of myself are, are what I feel makes our profession vital and what what makes you know this field vital is that we are artistic we're scientific we're aesthetic um and we're creatively solving problems uh throughout all these various lenses um so i would i would definitely encourage young researchers to trust themselves and, and don't think they have to pretend to be the researcher or pretend to be the clinician, but really they're an artist over here. No, find ways to integrate yourself and, and, and to stay true to that, you know, know yourself. Well, I would thank you uh, very much for the time for the, uh, for a really great uh, conversation with all of, like we said, the complexity, there's a lot of data <laughs> and, and uh, uh, very stimulating, uh, to, to better understand arts-based research. Thanks again for the time, Dr. Michael Viega. Thank you, Dr. Andrew Knight. I appreciate it. This has been the Music Therapy Research Podcast associated with musictherapyresearchblog.com. Your hosts are Dr. Blythe Lagasse and Dr. Andrew Knight, music therapy faculty members at Colorado State University. Follow MTRB on Facebook and your hosts on Twitter to stay up on all the music therapy research we send out into the world. If you enjoyed the podcast, please let us know by heading to iTunes and submitting a review and a rating. It only takes a minute and helps our visibility on the iTunes page tremendously. Thanks in advance. Also, send in a comment about the podcast on the contact page at musictherapyresearchblog.com.